a podcast one production. G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to the 10th and final episode of Series 1 of Cryptonomics. Over the series, we've done our best to explore and explain the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. On this episode, a celebration of the Satoshi decade. The whole field of blockchain is exactly 10 years old. And in this episode, we'll be speaking to a panel of blockchain experts to learn how it's working its way into agribusiness, marketing, gaming, and law. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed. That's why we called this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Ripple, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype here, but there's also a lot of good, solid business. In this episode, recorded live at Fintech Hub's Stone & Chalk in Sydney, Australia, we celebrated a decade that's past, then look forward to the decade to come. Let me start with a quote. A purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted party is still required to prevent double spending. We propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer network. It all sounds so simple. So innocuous, almost easy. Those are the opening words to Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And that white paper lit a match that set fire to the entire world of economics. Now, how do I know this? Well, a lot of the people I have been talking to over the course of this series have been telling me this. Last week, I got to sit down with Joseph Lubin, the co-creator of Ethereum, the founder of Consensus, someone I reckon we should consider as the grandfather of the smart contract. And if you trace his journey back to its beginnings, well, here's what Joe had to say. I encountered it uh, a very small handful of times on Slashdot in early uh, 2011. I decided I should download the the paper and and read it. Uh, So... Uh, immediately was pretty moved by it. Uh, immediately, um, it kind of flipped me from from being um, disillusioned to quite optimistic. Flipped a switch. And that is not the first time I'd heard words like that. Now, I have been interviewing heaps of people for cryptonomics. On our first show... We had Ron Tucker, who is the chairman of the Australian Digital Currency Association. Here's what he has to say, and I just want to point out that the person that he references when he's making this statement is in the room with us now, but we'll come to that. Did you play Ron's I was working in a shared office space in Newtown with a a number of other budding entrepreneurs, and one of my good friends and, and, and the guy behind that working space walked into the office, I think it was February 2013, and stood at the door like a man on fire saying, folks, has anyone here heard of Bitcoin? And the room went silent. I'd say there was about 20 of us there. And uh, you could hear a pin drop. Um, and, and no, nobody had heard of Bitcoin, but he was quite passionate about it. And I knew enough about, uh, about my good friend Hugo O'Connor to be paying attention to, to what it was he was talking about. He's somebody who often sees the future well ahead, horizons ahead. So... I had him sit down with me. He showed me the Satoshi white paper and I proceeded to spend the next three days pacing that office and my house, unable to sleep, just obsessed, blown away by, by what it is I just read. Um, the paper itself, it's, there's, it's simple elegance. Yeah, very well done. So, so that's what had me for, for about three days, unable to, unable to sleep. Flipping switches, 
keeping people awake for days on end because their brains are just on fire. You know, it all comes down to what I've started to consider the ultimate internet mic drop. (laughs) Here's a white paper that describes an entirely new financial system. See ya. It's insane. If you wrote this in a movie, no studio would ever make the film. They'd go, who would ever believe this? And yet, a decade on, it turns out that there are a fair few believers. And a lot of folks have gone on to take some of the ideas in the white paper, and there are a lot of ideas in the white paper. And not only are they believing in it, they're willing to actually build businesses on those ideas. Here's Sheffield Clark. Now, Sheffield founded the Bitcoin ATM network CoinSource. Blockchain technology was first brought to my attention by way of Bitcoin in 2013 and led me to co-found CoinSource, the world's largest Bitcoin ATM network. Until then, Bitcoin wasn't accessible to a lot of people and I wanted to simplify the technology so anyone can use it. We now have the ability to provide resources to unbanked communities Resources we did not have a decade ago, and we are just on the cusp of exploring this technology's full potential. Blockchain is increasingly providing use cases to real-world problems we are currently facing, and I am excited to be a part of this innovative community, which is quite literally changing the world. The internet changed the way we communicate, interact, and learn, and over the next years, I believe we will see a similar revolution take place, spurred by the capabilities first proposed in the Satoshi White Paper. Now that brings us to the four folks who are sitting here, three of whom are working in blockchain-based startups. To my immediate left, Bridie Olson is blockchain lead for AgriDigital. Now, if you've been listening to Cryptonomics, you've already heard that we've spoken to Emma Watson, who's the CEO of AgriDigital, back in episode three, when we were talking about interesting uses of blockchains. Phil Shelper is the CEO of the Loyalty and Reward Company, using blockchain to empower, well, I call it marketing, but we're going to have a conversation about that. He calls it loyalty. Max Kenny is the CEO of CryptoFlip, using smart contracts to rewrite one of the oldest rules in the book, that the house always wins. And finally, Dr. Philippa Pip Ryan is senior lecturer at the U- at UTS School of Law and on the Blockchain Technical Committee and the chair of the Smart, Ch- Smart Contracts Working Group of Standards Australia, which is a mouthful, but we'll unroll that. Panelists, welcome. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. All right, so, Bridie. Yes. The amazing thing about tonight is that in many ways, what AgriDigital is doing is the most normal application. But for everyone in the room who might not know, what are you doing with a blockchain? Sure, yes. Let's make this sound the most normal of all of them. Um, So we're building software in agriculture. I should stop there and we'll all understand what we're doing. (laughs) Um, No, so we're a a startup based in Sydney. We were founded by a group of farmers who saw some big challenges along agriculture supply chains and in the businesses that they were running and wanted to look at ways that we could leverage technology to help solve for those challenges. I mean, agriculture is largely an industry that missed out on the benefits of the internet. And with a whole wave of new technologies coming through, we wanted to make sure that agriculture didn't miss out again and it was very close to home for our founders. So we set out to solve three big problems. The first, that farmers don't actually get paid for what they're delivering when they deliver it to market. And the second, which is related to the first challenge, is that buyers don't have access to finance in order to pay farmers. It's not just in Australian agriculture. This is something that happens globally. Um, And the third challenge that we're facing is that consumers like us don't have real verified information about the food and the fibre that they're buying. So um, where do you start with a challenge that big? Well, uh, we've started at the farmer end, being a farmer-focused organisation, and we started by delivering a platform into market. And the AgriDigital Commodity Management Platform is a cloud-based SaaS product. Uh, It's kind of 
aiming at delivering efficiencies and automation to grain businesses in Australia. So we have about 2,000 users on that platform and they are in harvest at the moment. So our team is super busy making sure that that runs smoothly. It's going to be a, a light harvest this year, but uh, there is grain coming in nonetheless. Uh, and the other part of our business, which is where I work, is looking at how we can leverage blockchain across ag supply chains. So we've been in this space since 2016. That makes us pretty ancient in blockchain sense of things. Um, so we executed the world's first settlement of um, an ag commodity uh, on a blockchain in 2016. The tech has changed heaps since then. And um, so is our thinking around how blockchain can benefit supply chains. And we are really excited to be launching our blockchain protocol in the next uh, six months. Well, we'll come to that because we'll come to our Get looking there. forward yeah. part. All right, Phil, you and I had a, a good back and forth. You know, I think of when you're talking about loyalty and reward, I think of it as a marketing tool, but you actually think of it as a loyalty tool, a tool that builds loyalty between customers and people. Can you talk about that in the context of what you do? So how does a blockchain build loyalty? We know that it can substitute for trust, but where do we get to loyalty on that? Sure. Well, uh, probably even going deeper, I'd call it an engagement tool, uh, uh, which is uh, really uh, beyond loyalty. Uh, we're using it in uh, two main ways um, uh, in trying to uh, reinvent uh, our loyalty approaches. So the first way is uh, using a, a crypto token or a cryptocurrency as a substitute for points and miles in a loyalty program. Uh, there's a number of companies around the world who are doing that. Uh, um, some of them are, are being quite successful with it. And the difference between points and miles in a cryptocurrency is points and miles value uh, is centralised and it stays very flat uh, and it is the, the actual value is under the control of the program operator, uh, whereas a cryptocurrency or a crypto token value is decentralised and it's, uh, it's basically controlled by the exchange uh, and the uh, powers of uh, demand and supply. Uh, we're also uh, working with some companies who are doing some really amazing stuff in the back end. Uh, one of the challenges with uh, loyalty programs is they tend to be quite insular. Um, uh, companies build uh, big loyalty platforms that uh, don't necessarily interact well with other platforms. So uh, we're working with a company who has a back end black uh, a blockchain solution that integrates with different loyalty program uh, platforms and also uh, merchant platforms uh, to enable uh, a better earn and redemption opportunities uh, for customers. So there's a number of major airlines around the world and airline alliances around the world that are uh, connecting all of their loyalty platforms uh, together with blockchain uh, in order to allow much easier and real-time uh, earn and redemption of, of points, uh, which will be a much better customer experience. Okay, that actually makes an enormous amount of sense. And I'm thinking, sitting there thinking about all of my Qantas points and my Virgin points and all that going, mm, and my flybys, all of that stuff. Okay, Max, we know now CryptoFlip is working at its very basic level on a smart contract that does a coin toss, right? Correct, yes. So, so you and I are going to stake, let's say, one Ether, because we have to do this in a cryptocurrency. You're on heads, I'm on tails. And in fact, we could, we could flip the lovely gold coin that Pip gave us earlier, and, and winner would take all on that, right? Yes, exactly. But actually, it turns out it's nowhere near that easy, is it? Because in order to do that, you have to be able to guarantee that that coin toss is going to be random. What is that? Why is that such a hard problem to solve? Yeah, so that's, that's a very challenging topic. Um, and really, it's, it's broken down between when you have something on-chain, on the blockchain, a miner has to compute and, and, and store and, and claim that block. So, uh, so a miner being one of the systems that's on the blockchain, which is actually earning coins by performing calculations in smart contracts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if they have any input in swaying the result their way, so they could bet against someone unknowing that they're a miner, and then it's their job to find the, the transaction that decides who wins, they're going to keep on going until they find one where they win and then right, right. throw that through. So... Doing, doing uh, randomness in a decentralized way where it's trustless relies on a process whereby miners can't front run the system, which is incredibly difficult. All right, so basically peek at the next card in exactly. the deck. Yeah. So then the other side of that is you don't involve the miners at all and you decide who wins off-chain. But the issue with off-chain is that... Who, then there's how a, can I trust that? It's a third-party trusted yeah. uh, entity. Um, so again, how can they be trusted? So it's this incredibly difficult sort of flux between on-chain and off-chain 
And there's a lot of different methods that people are going through to solve that. Um, the Ethereum Foundation recently announced they're working on their own solution, which is a delayed verifiable method, which is similar to the way that blocks are added to the blockchain, but the computation is done in advance and then the result is revealed later. So, yeah, I don't yeah, want to get too I, deep, I, but it's, I, it, it's a very complex topic um, and we're trying to sort of cut a line between both. Yeah. Right, and if you solve that, if you solve randomness good enough, you've solved it for a whole bunch of other things besides gaming then, right? That's true, yes. Um, our smart contracts are being built in a way whereby it's a platform and you can layer any game on top of it. So Minesweeper, Poker, anything, you know, Tetris. Um, Actually, yes, because the, the blocks need to drop randomly. Exactly. For the game yeah. to be interesting. All right, so... Pip, we have three very, very different businesses here. Very good, like completely different market segments. And you're actually busy spearheading the effort that's going to make sure that they're all using standards, that they can all start to interoperate and talk with one another. Because we're in that early, that early stage where there's just lots of stuff floating around. And I mean, this is part of Max's problem. This is part of Phil's problem. This is part of Bridie's problem, is that there's a whole bunch of things to use, but there's no consensus around that. So what are you doing and what is Australia leading the way in on this? So Australia is in a very good position because we run the Secretariat for the Blockchain Technical Committee and that came about in 2016. Um, what we're doing is, just, just by way of background, standards has nothing to do with regulation. If anything, it fights against regulation. It tries not to regulate or to interoperate um, in, a, in a sense that government might control. Um, so the way standards works is that it aims to achieve three things, and this is the same in most sort of common law countries like Australia. So the important thing to note is that we, we aim for interoperability, which you've said. Standards also does something else that's quite magic. It improves the reputation yes. of the technology yes. to which it attaches. Yeah. So I'll come back to that in a second. And then the third one is it seeks to achieve market liberalism. It says, let's, let's achieve standards by giving something explicit to all the players. Mm -hmm. So maybe Max is going to dominate the market. His, his chaotic system is going to be picked up by self-driving vehicles because we need... What happens at that moment when the self-driving vehicle needs to decide, do I need to kill, do I kill the doctor? Exactly, who do I kill? Bring randomness into it, a bit of chaos, you know, behave a bit more weirdly. He takes off and suddenly his code is, is the code everyone right. wants to use and AgriDigital's being left behind. With standards, what we try to say is, let's create an open conversation where it would make more sense from the get-go if we're all using the same internet, the same railway platform, we're all using either Sega, PAL, Beta, Video, VHS. One is going to win in the end. Wouldn't it be great if the one that wins is shared and it's best practice? So... Those, those three aims are quite lofty aims, but there is a long, long, decades-long tradition of this working. Well, I mean, the web. There were many standards of uh, hypertext or many products around hypertext, but the web was the first one that was open and freely available and standardised, and now exactly. we've got the world. Exactly, and if you look at the protocols for packet switching, the ones we use may not be the best, but isn't it good we're all using the same ones? Yes. That, makes, that makes such a difference for interoperability. So... Um, that, that's the aim, and I think it is actually more inclusive to have the development and exploration of what standards might look like early. And I think the most extraordinary thing, and I was just doing a bit of a podcast with Adriana Bellotti earlier for her um, wonderful program that she runs, and we were talking about this, and I said... Um, I think one of the best things about exploring it early has been, I'm an academic and I'm a barrister, and those two environments can be remarkably combative and competitive, but you get a whole bunch of experts into the room to talk about standards, and suddenly we're all collaborating. Yeah. And I hate to say it, we make beautiful music, Mark. <laughs> but we, like we do, we all collaborate. We've got the regulators, industry startup people like Bridie, all sitting in a room together, bankers all trying to work out how do we cooperate rather than compete. Is that, is that true, Brad? Do you find the environment collaborative and, rather than competitive? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's technically very helpful for, for Pip and others to be creating that space for us. But I, just to pick up on what Pip said about helping with best practice, it's very hard to sell a product and say we abide to best practice when there isn't one. So um, good, good we're, we're very engaged in the standards work for, for that reason as well. Okay, I want to jump back to the beginnings because we're talking about this, the Satoshi decade. And I want to go to a grab now with some words from Cryptonomics patron saint, Mark Jeffrey. And I started trying to actually uh, puzzle out how it worked as an engineer. Uh, because as you know, I have an engineering background. So I, I, you know, I read through all of the documents. And it, it took me, even with an engineering background, it took me a while to kind of get uh, or understand Grok deeply what I was seeing. Because um, it was very unlike anything else that had come before. And I found myself scratching my head going, but, but where are the Bitcoins stored? You know, I was asking <laughs> questions like that. And uh, I don't know, at some point, after reading enough, uh, enough of it, it clicked. And I suddenly saw a picture in my head and I was like, oh, that's what this is. And I, I realized, I, I kind of had this moment where I was like, oh my God, this is like, it's sort of like Napster, but, um, it, it, but enough different and with money. You can have items that are rare. You can enforce scarcity for the first time in a fully distributed way. And the first obvious application of that was money, but there are a lot of other things that are scarce also that you could enforce and have, you could have digital scarcity on the internet for the first time without a centralized authority controlling it all or ruling over it. And I just suddenly went, oh my God, this is probably more important than the internet itself. So I guess the first question I wanna ask all of you, where do you fall on this? How important is it? How did you feel when you, was there a moment when you got it? How did you feel? And, and did you get the sense of, whoa, this is going to be big? Uh, yeah, so for me, the first time that I heard about blockchain that wasn't Bitcoin, I heard about it in the sense of being a database and um, very much focused on how you could store data in a different way. And my background before that was uh, very, I came from a, a law school graduate role and not, we're not wanting to pursue that. I was more interested in looking at international supply chains. And so I came at this distributed database from the perspective of um, you know, a supply chain of participants who each share information around commodities and common goods but don't really trust each other, don't know each other. So understanding how you could store data in a different way and share that and share that value more equally and even identify where value was added was massive for me. It really, um, it, it was definitely a, a flicking of a switch moment to realise how that could impact our supply chains and redistribute value and data between participants. Bill? Yeah, so for me, I didn't really get it at all until someone sat me down and said, it's about the scarcity, man. Uh, and that was really exciting for me when I had uh, that revelation right. because um, within a, a loyalty context, um, being able to create a, a digital currency that is uh, scarce uh, really is a revolution. Uh, and I just love the whole concept of uh, a, a loyalty program being able to create their own currency and have that scarce and generate enough demand for that token within uh, people earning uh, within the loyalty program uh, in order to drive the value up and then create uh, uh, additional value for everyone who's participating. So that's quite a nice community play. Um, so when I heard about it, uh, we actually went and did a, a, a research project at the University of New South Wales uh, over a six-week period uh, last year, and we uh, allowed students and staff to go around and earn ether at 12 different merchants on campus. And at the end of it, we surveyed them because we wanted to know, is this really something uh, that people are going to get more excited about than they would with points? And uh, the outcome was absolutely, they just love the idea of, of, uh, of collecting something that had the potential to really uh, increase in value over time. So that was really cool. Um, the other thing uh, um, that, that we love about it, uh, a lot of people say there's too many cryptocurrencies and too many crypto tokens in the world. There's, you, you know, thousands and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, we actually disagree with it because from a loyalty context, there's um, many, many more uh, loyalty currencies in the world than there is cryptocurrencies because each uh, loyalty program that creates points, um, that's actually an individual currency. Or miles, it's an individual currency. Uh, so there's easily a place for thousands and thousands of crypto tokens and cryptocurrencies uh, within a loyalty context. Uh, but it's all a matter of getting the tokenomics right so the balance of supply and demand is there uh, to support the value. So 
Max, you've been specifically working in smart contracts, and I always, I mean, I, I, I got blockchain, I thought it was great, but when I got what a smart contract was, that to me was my moment, and I think it's because I'm a geek, and I go, oh my God, there's code here, wait, I can do crazy things with code. Did you have something similar, or what happened when you sort of got this, and you understood that you could use it in gaming? Uh, yeah, so the first time that I uh, learned about Bitcoin was a colleague of mine was buying it maybe six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the valuation, you know, lost, it lost half its value in like two days or something. So I'd laugh at him. And it wasn't until a few years later that um, Ethereum came out and I started to sort of, okay, well, now it's gone beyond moving money around to being able to program what the money does without a person touching it. And the minute that happened, it sort of became... You know, it was almost like the crypto anarchist inside me rose up and said, let's tear down the system. And then instantly I went to, okay, well, where's the middleman that needs to be taken out of, you know, some of the largest industries and gambling stood out as one where the house is standing in between people trying to win money against this central controlling entity that, you know, really has a lot of power in actually what happens. Um, So let's just get them out of the way and have people bet against other people where they both have an equal chance of taking each other's money. So when you go to gamble, it's not against the house where they have an obscured house edge, it's against another person or people where everyone has the same chance of winning and one of them will walk away with everyone else's money. So instantly it's no longer gambling as everyone knows it. It's, it's like two up on Anzac Day, but on a global scale with cryptocurrency. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, Pip, do you remember your moment with the, with the blockchain? Yeah, for me, it's all about trust, um, the, mm-hmm. the claim for trustlessness. Mm-hmm. And the first time I heard about it, it was the 13th of October 2015. I did a Google search on the term trustlessness and blockchain, and I got eight hits. Eight hits. So I took a screenshot. So early days. I took a screenshot of that, because if you do that Boolean search now, you'll get 340,000 yep. hits. Yeah. And the interesting thing for me was because my doctorate had explored the classification of different types of breach of trust, the idea that there's even such a thing as trustlessness was anathema to my understanding of the universe. Um, But I remember thinking at the time, oh, this is like that moment when Ferris... In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which by, you know, if anybody listening to this or anyone in the room hasn't actually seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, stop, pause right now, watch it, come back we'll to wait, this. We'll wait, we'll wait, come we'll back. We'll wait, well, I'll still be here. Okay, so back to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's this moment where he's at home having his day wagging. That's an Aussie term for truanting or just skiving. And he goes in and hacks into Ed Rooney's computer and changes the mark in the subject that the school is trying to complain to his parents about. Now, if Ed Rooney had had the sense to take that mark and distribute it to every single person in the faculty, then, of course, Ferris would have to hack into every single one of the computers to change the mark. So that's where my brain went on the 13th of October 2015. and that, that's it. For me, that was, um, you can only trust the mark. Right. Whether Ferris got that mark or not on that day doesn't matter. It's what's on the record that matters because that's what's going to end up on his transcript. And for me as a lawyer who cares about fraud and breach of trust, that's the important moment for me. this is touching on decentralization. This is a point that gets brought up as a key feature across the entire Satoshi decade. And Ron Tucker already name-checked Hugo O'Connor, who's trying to hide there in the back of the room, when he told the story of his own Bitcoin enlightenment. But actually, we got a grab from Hugo earlier in the week. Could we play that? If you walk through any major city today, the most magnificent monuments belong to the banks. After the 2008 global financial crisis, I became interested in the inner workings of these institutions. I came to the conclusion, as many reasonable people have, that the system is fundamentally unfair and increasingly unstable. So when Bitcoin came onto my radar in 2013, I was excited at the possibility of an alternate financial system. A system without any central party pulling the levers, where the users collectively agreed on the rules, and where that agreement is enforced through cryptography. So at the very least, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have created a conversation 
over these past 10 years about institutions that were once considered beyond reproach and the way they operate. But I believe the future is promising. Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies and the blockchain have demonstrated in principle that it is possible to devolve hierarchical structures of organizing into decentralized networks. Solutions to the issues of scalability and privacy are within reach. A growing community of people are looking at ways to leverage this technology to address the pressing issues of our time, such as bringing financial inclusion to the world's 2 billion unbanked, or building a global issue-based direct democracy to take action on climate change. That community is well-resourced and well-motivated. Now is the time to dream big. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question to all of you, and I want all of you, in any order you want, to answer it. We have this idea of decentralization. Decentralization's become one of the reasons that people believe, start to work with blockchain. I'm starting to wonder if this decentralization isn't simply the talk to the tick of centralization, that we go back and forth, the same way we go client and server and cloud and edge. And Is this simply a natural return or is this something that's actually more profound, that we actually will be living in a much more profoundly decentralized world over the next decade because of this? Or is it simply going to restore some balance to the force? Anyone? Yeah. I'll start then. Yeah. Um, I'll continue just running in a linear way. Please jump in. Um, so, uh, from a product perspective at AgriDigital, we think about decentralization in relation to our customers and our market that we're playing in, and then also technically. Mm-hmm. And we do treat them separately. So, uh, we think about agriculture supply chains from a market perspective. They're very centralized. There are a number of massive players who run a lot of what happens and, and capture a lot of the value along our supply chains. Meanwhile, there are millions of farmers. I think if you look in China alone, there are 340 million farmers. So, we're looking at ways that we can decentralize our supply chains from a product perspective and drive value to our farmers. Uh, one of the reasons that supply chains work how they do, particularly in a bulk sense, so we're thinking like bulk grain, bulk rice, cotton, um, wine in lots of cases, uh, we're looking at how we can give farmers better options or more options to market. One of the reasons they can't take hold of them at the moment is because the supply chains are largely centralised. So if they can, for example, get some more cash up front when they're in their production phase, they can make a different choice around where they want to send their product and not just forced into the one storage provider that's operating in the town that's within 100 kilometres of their property. Um, So we think about it from a product perspective, what are we trying to drive? choice for farmers, it's liquidity into their businesses so that they can, I guess, decentralise their operations and their supply chain in a way. When we look at then doing that technically, it's a little bit of a different question, particularly at the moment when we look at blockchain and how it works uh, in its current commercial functionality. Uh, A lot of the peripheral tech that we're using to actually access these decentralized databases at the moment is highly centralized. So things like identity solutions, digital wallets, those are often quite centralized solutions. So um, even when we think of our use case for our farmers to access it, we actually centralize a lot of the commercial functionality. So like key management um, or their digital wallets, we centralize those tools in order to serve the end need of the product. Uh, I think if we think about going forward... So so it's a mix. It really is a mix of using decentralized and centralized where it makes sense. Yeah, and I think what we're starting to see are better decentralized tools. Um, You know, there's some some pretty cool stuff coming out of the past week um, at DevCon 4, looking at ways that we can store data in a more decentralized way. DevCon 4 being the big Ethereum development conference where all the the major people doing Ethereum development. Yeah, that's my two cents on that. So I don't think a lot of people trust themselves with managing all their wealth. I think they like having this larger entity than them that does it for other people, that does it all for them. They earn it, they store it somewhere else. They don't like holding a treasure uh, with all their money on it. You know, I think so, uh, you know, there's, there's that element to it. And I think if Satoshi knew uh, today, if, you, you know, they, it, Wherever he, they whatever... Are. If he knew the process someone had to go through to get Bitcoin, he'd roll over in his grave. I think he would hate the fact that you've got to go through KYC this, upload a photo of you holding today's date and a newspaper. It's not decentralised. It's entirely centralised. And although the underlying technology is there, 
and the ethos of what he was trying to de- develop still exists. The method through which people have to go through to get there is just the antithesis of what he was trying to create. Um, okay, I don't really agree with that, Max. I think you're ramping on. I think what, what's happening at that moment is ramping onto the system. But I think once you're on, then the peer-to-peer kicks in. And I think the reason why we ramp on is to comply with some pretty important regulations to make sure we're doing things in a way that isn't... Um, Antisocial or just antisocial behaviour, you know, avoiding tax, things okay, like but that. So then this is, a, and this is actually in my notes, because we actually have this problem where the banks have this very ambiguous relationship specifically to cryptocurrencies because of the issues around money laundering and things like this. Is there a way to be able to make the regulator and the blockchain happy at the same time? I I think there is, and I think open banking is going to have a big part to play in that, and open data will start at the same time. So open banking meaning that you actually get all of the transaction data from your bank, your bank doesn't hold it or it hands it over to you? Uh, Yeah, that that transaction data is only one type of the data that's managed. If you look through part four of the open banking report, it's got about eight different types of data that that are affected. Oh, and then there's some that's not. You know, the aggregated data created by the bank is its own intellectual property. That doesn't fall within the rights to right. So whatever it customers. learns about you, it gets to keep. But that's whatever right. you make yourself, you that's can That's right. But if I, if I want to go to Toyota tomorrow and buy a car online and I've seen the photo and it's brand new and it's a trusted brand and I want to buy that little RAV4 and transfer $46,000 to their bank account so I can pick it up tomorrow, at the moment, can't do it. Because there's a whole lot of regulation about transactions above a certain amount of money. Right even if we bank with the same bank. And most of the friction arises exactly where Max talks about. He's dead right. The KYC, anti-money laundering legislation. know your customer. Know your customer and know your customer's customer. And sometimes KYC means know your client Mm. and your client's customer. So those restrictions are important and I, I back them 100%, but they are the friction. With open banking, we'll be able to ask our bank to send our KYC to the finance company that owns the Toyota outlet and boom, we're now in business. Um, Can I say something about the tick and the tock, the pendulum swinging that you raised, that wonderful metaphor? If you only reach back to the last 30 years and talk about the world we live in online, Mm. I agree with you. There is this pressure to... And this swinging backwards and forwards between the big mega companies and trying to be more community-based in the way we deal with each other. But if you reach back about a bit further and you go back about 2,000 years and you ask how have we communicated with each other and entered into contracts as social beings and as communities that have got more than just barter, where we have actually got a medium of exchange, mm. cash, shells, gold, whatever it is. I think if you reach back further, this is totally... A violent shift, not a little one, because double entry accounting in the 17th century and then the way it was used in the 18th century gave birth to globalisation. And we covered that in episode one. Oh, we are doing a full circle. Yes. There we go. Um, and I think what's happening is that with blockchain, we're able to say we needed for the, for the globalisation and the use of the internet to have a trusted intermediary and double entry accounting was the proof of work Mm. through intermediaries. But if you want a proof of work and you want to sidestep the intermediary, then you need not triple entry accounting, accounting, but infinite entry, entry accounting, and that's blockchain. And that's why it's a violent shift in the way we socially contract at our social economics. But violent in a good way, Mark. Well put. Okay, so we have to now start to turn our eyes to the future. We want to do that for a little bit so we have some time for questions from the audience. Now, we're a decade in. We need to start to think about what the next decade is going to hold. And and I asked... uh, Chami Akimamama, who's a part of the Blockchain Research Institute. And here's what he had to say on that topic. My blockchain journey, like many others, started when I first read the white paper on Bitcoin and realized how it actually had the potential to revolutionize the financial services sector. Then years later, I came across Ethereum and realized a future beyond cryptocurrencies where this technology had the potential to turn everything upside down. The technology has started to demonstrate the ability to disrupt so many things we have held as absolute for decades. Things like creating a level playing field and empowering the underserved citizens of the world. For example, creating a secure land registry 
for citizens in rural India to provide them with guarantees that their life savings cannot be taken out from underneath them, and a welcome consequence being greater access to finance for the given citizen due to conclusive ownership over the given asset, in this case, land. Over the next five to ten years, I'm expecting to see significant strides in areas like self-sovereign digital IDs, financial inclusion, and global supply chains. So, Brady, I want you to talk a little bit about where AgroDigital is going next, but I also want to ask you and all of you, is blockchain solving our problems or is it simply creating a new class of different problems? Uh... I think, it's a, I think it's a really valuable tool we can use to solve some of our problems, but it's not the only tool. And I think um, what was just picked up in that soundbite then is super interesting because this focus that we've had around cryptocurrency being the only part of blockchain, um, you know, I, I run a blockchain product and I don't think about cryptocurrency any, like, you know, four out of five days of the week. So there are fantastic use cases that go far beyond that. Now, if you're looking at those use cases, though, blockchain is not your only tool that you're using to solve those challenges. Um, you know, in, in agriculture, what we're using blockchain for at AgriDigital is to connect that data and those participants. But the data is no good if it's not a true representation of what physically exists. So we're not just using blockchain. Um, um, we're using a whole suite of other applications and integrating with a whole suite of other applications along that supply chain so that we're actually capturing real data. So it might be an IoT device that's in, looking into a silo, verifying that the grain is actually sitting there, or we integrate into platforms um, so we can get you know, live data capture from the site operator who's capturing the, the delivery as it comes in from the farm. So in your future, blockchain is simply... Although importantly, it's simply part of the mix. It's completely just mixed in. We don't think of it, oh, there's a blockchain in there. It's just like, oh, yeah, the, well, of course we're using a blockchain for that. That's how you do that. Yeah, it becomes part of your tech stack and a, and a valuable part, yeah. definitely. But uh, I think it has to be thought about in, in at least in an agriculture sense. Um, others can talk to other industries as part of that solution. I mean, there's a famous, you know, a famous saying about technology. It should either be beautiful or invisible. And blockchain without other pieces of tech is, is really neither. Um, Unless you're, unless you're some developers out there, I might have offended by saying that who find it particularly beautiful. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, it has to be part of the, part of the mix. So, so, Phil, you were in the room when I was talking to Joe Lubin last week, and I did ask him, I was like, are we heading to a future where there are just an infinite number of currencies? And you basically said that in your introduction. And that's going to be partially your doing because you're going to be giving basically every brand and every retailer and everyone else their own currency. What does that future look like for us? Yeah, well, uh, there's certainly a number of companies who are investing heavily in that future right now. So uh, I was at uh, a blockchain loyalty conference in Chicago a couple of weeks ago and uh, one of the companies that's sponsored at uh, Digital Bits is building that exact platform, uh, which is a single uh, blockchain platform that can support uh, large numbers of individual loyalty programs. So uh, each individual brand can have their own branded token um, that sits on that platform uh, that can be used, uh, earned and redeemed uh, within their ecosystem, but also uh, can be interchanged for uh, any other uh, token that's on that platform as so well. So you really have a true exchange there. So it's not just that currency over there, and then maybe if you're lucky, you can exchange it, but these things are always exchangeable, which means they're always wanted. People will always want them. That's exactly right. So it provides uh, better fungibility and interoperability, uh, which uh, really makes it uh, a much more valuable currency. Uh, and from a loyalty perspective, people then want, want to earn more of it, uh, so they shop more with the participating retailers. Um, the, uh, the extension of that is taking existing loyalty currencies such as points and miles and tokenizing them uh, so that they can then be interchanged with other uh, loyalty programs as well uh, and there's a lot of money we're talking about here we're talking about billions okay. and billions of dollars uh, of points being held in people's accounts uh, so being able to unlock that and allow people to uh, access that value in the way that they want to uh, is an immediate uh, consumer use case that is very exciting so Max, you're starting off with a very, very simple smart contract here, you know, the coin flip, and yet it's got all this stuff underneath to, to handle the randomness. Where do, you, where do you see this kind of work evolving? In, in a decade's time, what kinds of interesting gaming-based smart contracts will we start to see? 
Uh, I think we'll see uh, more where you don't have a house involved. I think you'll never get rid of the house. I think people like the games offered by a house. They also like dressing up and going and the bright lights and the drinks and the experience. Uh, and they have all of that going for them. They've put a lot of work in, in architecting that, so there is something to keep you there. Um, but that's not going to be the only way to gamble. Um, so I think because... Uh, people that do gamble haven't had the option to play in a transparent environment where they know what the odds are of winning and if they lose it's to another person that had the same chance they did, not a house. Um, I think the nature of the industry will, will shift. You know, if, if you look at an EBITDA margin, we're going to make a lot, a lot less per player than a casino because we're not just taking all of their money, we're taking a fraction of the winner's portion. So, um, you know, on paper, it looks like a, 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 a business to run by comparison. It's how I would want to if, if I was going to partake. I don't think I'd want to, I don't play at a casino because I've got no idea what they're doing behind the scenes uh, and they profit when I lose. So if they're controlling the game um, and have sway in what happens and I can't verify, did I win or were you telling me I lost? Well, I guess I lost then. Well, should I get it? I'll just go again. You know, so the, yeah, you know, I, I know people that suffer from, from gambling addiction and it's horrible. You know, it's, 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 it's very sad. Um, and I'm trying to do something that, that gives them a, a safer way to do that rather than just continuing with, with what they have. Yeah. Pip, I get a daily newsletter from MIT. I don't know if you're on it as well, the technology news, uh, the technology review newsletter about all things crypto. And this morning I opened it up and there was this really great report about the Swedish Reichsbank which is actively pursuing creating a fully digital currency, a kron, I think it's a krona over there. And we've been hearing rumors, and we're now getting to this point where it may actually be that a state with a real central bank and all the things that kind of make people who are very into decentralization a little bit wary actually go full bore into a fully digital currency. How many, I want you to gaze in your crystal ball, how many state-backed digital currencies will we see at the end of the next Satoshi decade? Will we see a lot or just a few? Uh, I, think, I think we'll see only a very, very few. Um, Sweden's got a very particular cultural backdrop to this story. There were a couple of really big heists in Sweden in the last 10 years, a major piece of artworks, a gold repository, and the Swedes don't like it. They've got a very funny attitude about um, James Bond-type heists against cultural artefacts in the state. For some reason, they don't like it. Um, and it's funny you refer to them as kroner. I was in Sweden last month, and they call them crowns. So they use the English, we use the Swedish. But anyway, um, I actually took 300 kroner with me, and it was impossible to part with it because they are so cashless. So I was begging people to l take the cash. Take my kroner, please. But they, they are so proudly cashless that I was taking photographs at cafes that say we are proudly cashless in both Swedish and in English. Um, so they, they have a cultural imperative. They're at the point now where in their population of just 8 million people, they have the, the regulator monitoring FPOS transactions at point of sale. So they are using these electronic transactions to report to the regulator that the transactions have occurred. There are no cafes paying their suppliers that afternoon and not paying tax. That, that comes with the cultural imperative. Not all countries are like that. Some countries could do with a bit of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I could think of maybe Venezuela could do with a little bit of shoring up financially at the moment. Um, but, you know, I think it's going to be... I think those cultural um, underpinnings of what goes on there is going to inform that. So no matter what great technology we have, we're still always using that technology in the context of a culture of people and institutions which may or may not favour... A technology. I think that's right. And I think if we really scratch a little bit underneath what's going on there, whether it's agri-digital or gambling or loyalties or Sweden's currency and its, its desire to raise maximum tax and close the tax gap, you always have to ask yourself, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Mm. And I think the thing I love most about blockchain is I've heard this terribly derisory, sort of insulting comment everybody makes, which is blockchain's a solution looking for a problem. Actually, blockchain is a solution 
And if you scratch around a little bit and you work out how to fix your problem, yes, it may disrupt your backroom systems, but it may be worth your while. So, you know, a lot of people said, oh, we don't want to put our business on the internet because we'd have to change the way we do things. Well, the answer to that was change the way you (laughs) You do do things. things. And I think one of the things that I've noticed happens more and more is organisations say, oh, we explored a blockchain solution and came up with something better. I think we'll all look back in 10 years and say, blockchain provided a very special moment in time where we all decided to try and do things a little bit better. And even if blockchain wasn't the solution, it forced everyone's hand. I have one last question for the panel. And I I gave it to you ahead of time. I hope you all had time to think about it because I want you to, in one sentence, sum up the Satoshi decade. Okay, so the, the Satoshi decade has been a Gartner hype cycle superimposed over a speculative bubble. And that story's continuing while we sit in the trough of disillusionment and move towards the plateau of productivity. (laughs) Why did we let Pip go first? (laughs) I think we should all just go home now. (laughs) Who would like to follow up on that? So uh, from our perspective, uh, uh, the Satoshi decade um, hasn't really produced a huge amount within the loyalty space uh, and actually the next uh, 10 years is going to be much more exciting because things are only just starting. Uh, One of the big challenges uh, with uh, um, blockchain and and, um, cryptocurrencies is actually permeation of, of society. The vast majority of society don't own cryptocurrencies. They don't have any uh, engagement with uh, blockchain. And uh, um, as, as Max was saying... Um, You've gone over your sentence. <laughs> no, setting up an a, account and buying cryptocurrency is a nightmare scenario. We actually believe that within the next two to five years, uh, much more people will own cryptocurrencies uh, via participating with a loyalty program uh, than they will by trading. Uh, so the next 10 years is, is where we're very excited. Well, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. I'm going to say the first 10 years have been technically impressive, and I'd hope that the next 10 years are commercially impressive from a product perspective. Uh, I think what we've experienced over the past 10 years has been uh, instrumental in setting us on a new course, even though it was chaotic and a bit of a mess, and not a lot of people really made anything of it, but it set us on a new path where I think there are enough people in the space now that will see it through, um, and will deliver the new decade of decentralization. All right, and I wouldn't set a challenge to the panelists. I was prepared to answer it myself. In the Satoshi decade, everything became liquid. In the next decade, everything starts to flow. Ladies and gentlemen, let's thank our fantastic panel, Dr. Pip Ryan, Max Kenny, Joshua, Bridie Olson. <laughs> If you want to learn more about AgriDigital, loyalty and reward company CryptoFlip, or have a peek at Satoshi Nakamoto's original white paper on Bitcoin, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Now, this very special series final episode of Cryptonomics wouldn't have been possible without a lot of support. First... Thanks to our drop-in guests, Joe Lubin, Ron Tucker, Sheffield Clark, Mark Jeffrey, Hugo O'Connor, and Chami Akbimana. From Stone and Chalk, Laura Rowan, Olga Link, and Annie LeCavalier, who gave us a wonderful venue and even an amazingly delicious cake to eat afterward. From Podcast One Australia, Cameron Roberts and Dave Thomas for their wonderful work producing the recording, and of course, my awesome producer, Alex Mitchell. And for their sponsorship of the Treats After Work, big thanks to Huobi Australia. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>